are many misconceptions when it comes to the victims and perpetrators of sexual assault. Eight out of ten victims are assaulted by attackers they know personally, a fact that the media rarely represents in their depiction of the crime. Today I'll be talking to psychologist Dr. L.D. Tabori about the motivation and behaviour behind the violent act and the common misconceptions that lead to victim blaming and the silencing of rape survivors. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. Now, as a police officer back in England very many years ago, I was what we call a rape officer. So every time a rape came in, I would be taken off my usual duties and I would go and be with the victim. And at the time, that was because I was female and a very young female, but that was my job. And it was one of those rape cases that made me want to be a detective. It was a very traumatic case. The victim had had her eyes super glued shut by the offender as she was walking to a car. And um, she was amazing. She was so calm and she was, you know, she was just lovely. I was very emotional. And it was that point that I decided I wanted to catch these offenders. And so that kind of changed my career path. But obviously, you know, in the work that you do, that there's, no one size fits all. There's no real, this defines a rapist or this defines a survivor. So I wanted to talk to you today about your experiences and your view and thoughts on both victim and offender. So early on in my career, I started in the Los Angeles County Jail um, and then went over to the California State Department of Corrections and Parole. And in um, parole, I was primarily working, although not completely, but, but primarily working with sex offenders. At the same time, I was building my practice, uh, my private practice, which is what I have solely done for the past decade, but have been in my practice for almost 20 years now. What I have realized, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, we think of rape as something that's violent. and horrifying and it's by a stranger where you know it's usually a man and it's usually you know a scary man who um snatches you off the street and does really horrible things to you but in reality now i'm not saying that that doesn't occur because it does um but a majority of rapes are by people you know yep usually in a romantic or potentially romantic situation. A lot of the rapes are done by, and I I hate using the general term because um, women can be rapists as well, but primarily rapists are men. Right. And they, they don't actually know that what they're doing is rape. I mean, it's consent is only recently into come into the dialogue, and I've sat across the room from men who haven't realized that they have engaged in rape or any sort of sexual assault. I have sat across the room from women um, and other 
victims, and again, I don't want to say that women are the only victims, but primarily, um, who have been assaulted and raped and not realized it. Okay, so I understand what you're saying, and obviously with consent, and there's, you know, you can't consent anyway in certain circumstances, like if you're intoxicated, you can't give consent. And I understand there's often a fine line between in those kind of domestic relationships of of whether that is okay or not okay. And you mentioned that men often don't think or don't realize that they've done that. Do you think it's used as an excuse that we don't know, we didn't know we were doing it, she always normally said yes and today she said no or I didn't understand she'd said no? Or is it a case that it is very a very gray area? Yeah, I, I think perpetrators tend to think that it is a gray area. Um, it, it, it's actually not because consent can be withdrawn at any given time. You can be in the middle of having intercourse and consent can be withdrawn right. and people don't realize that. Um, I have had patients who you know, had taken somebody home, had sex with them. They had spent the night in the morning, woke up to the man on top of her, having sex with her while she was still asleep. Consent was not given in that case. Right. Even though she brought him home and the night before, there was consent. I've actually had a number of patients where that has happened. And those kind of situations, because obviously it's a nine times out of 10, unless you've seen somebody drag somebody down the street, it's a, a criminal offense that is, he said, she said, nine times out of 10. Obviously, there's medical evidence. But again, somebody doesn't always say they didn't do it. They say there was consent. And it's proving that consent that becomes the issue in the court of law. And so in a case like that, where there has been consent, and then there hasn't, it's a very difficult crime to prove. And it goes to he said, she said. And do you think that's one of the reasons that the conviction rate or even the investigation rate, to be honest, is so low? I I don't particularly know what the statistics are. Um, I know they're not very high. Um, I also think that women still are not believed um, and they're blamed, blamed for what they're wearing, blamed for being drunk, blamed for being flirty. So, yeah. And then women often, I, and I don't know how much of it, I mean, if you're looking at the statistics in terms of things that are brought to trial or things that are brought before a judge, um, but a lot of times, more often than not, it doesn't even get to that point because women don't report. Right. And that's a good point I wanted to look at because back in the in the day when I was a cop, which we know is very many years ago, it was very much about um, oh, she was wearing a short skirt. What did she expect? And the onus was put on the victim a lot more than it was on the offender. I thought that we got through that a little bit, but back in 2006, when I made Undercover Copper, the actual show changed because the attitude and the actions that I was able to record were very much still not wanting to get involved to help a, a victim, not sending the forensic guys to a house because it wasn't considered that important, not taking somebody to have a rape examination. It was still very much a prostitute. It's part of her job. And this week, um, I was involved in a 
in a case. And I and I spoke to the cops about this particular case who said, and the, the young girl has gone through the rape kit and the trauma, which in itself is a trauma, going to relive and discuss with strangers something that's horrific. To do that, it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to know that you probably won't be believed and there'll be a lot of people who will start slamming you because you're saying you've been raped. And then we have the police who are backing that. And so for me, I was like, what's what's going to happen now? Well, probably nothing because it's her word against his. Well, will it get investigated? Probably not, no. Why not? Well, it'll go to the DA and the DA will say there's not enough evidence and therefore we can't. We can't look into it. It, It's just, it's so infuriating because there's supposed to be police officers um, who are specially trained to deal with things like that. Is this training actually happening? Exactly. And I was a British cop and our training for our rape officers who weren't all, it changed and they weren't all females because as you know, there's people act real differently to what they're expected to act. You know, you don't, you have a stereotypical rape victim is supposed to be a complete mess, crying, can't control themselves, you know, show signs of emotion. I've sat with rape victims who are the calmest people I've ever sat with that they don't want anyone informing, you know, because they're dealing with it in their own way. And the police I work with them were like, well, that's not happened. Look how, you know, there's not, there's no emotion. It's like, again, you don't have a certain way that you have to be because you've been raped. Right. And that training needs to show that there's people who have been raped that can can act in every different way. There's people who have been raped who don't report it for years, years and years. Um, I, I worked actually on a on a male rape case and he was watching a show and there was a question about a charity and the charity was called Talk H and it was an English charity. And they took kids, underprivileged kids, they took them away on holidays. And and this gentleman, for 35 years, had carried that with him, that he'd been away with this organization as an underprivileged kid, and he had been raped every night by one of the, the staff. He didn't tell anyone until he saw that show, and it triggered the memory, and he reported the rape. And actually, we were incredibly successful, and he was just the one of many, and the gentleman went went to prison for a very long time but his wife was like this really weird because he would never close the curtains at night ever since I've met him because he knew when he was going to be raped was the moment that the guy closed the curtain in the dormitory and um you know so that was years so triggering yeah it was years after the event so people don't just do what probably the police expect them to do It's the rarity, especially immediately after a trauma happens, that people are melting down and breaking down and crying in tears and and things like that. A lot of times right after a trauma, we're in shock. Right. And so the emotions in that moment are stunted. It's, you know, hours or days or weeks or even months that you start connecting to what actually happen and start starting to understand it. But immediately after a trauma like rape, there is this limitation in affect, this limitation in in emotion when it comes to that experience. Yeah. What's your findings with 
I mean, for me, and I think a lot of people, when you mentioned the word rape, you summed it up really well at the start, what people's impression is and what they expect somebody to be or not be, whether that's the victim or the offender. Um, but rape is associated by mind with a sexual act. But my understanding is it's it's not a sexual act. It's a control. It's control. It's power. So again, when a victim is dealing with what's happened to them, it's they have to deal with the fact it wasn't a sexual thing. It was a control thing. Because I think a lot of a lot of people don't understand that, and they find it very difficult to understand. And they think it's a sex act. But it's not. It's about power. It's about control. It's about domination. And not in, you know, a sex positive way. It's about wanting to shame your victim. And people don't understand that that's what's going on. Power dynamics are only recently in our discussion as well. You know, when we have, uh, you know, in any, you know, sort of circumstance. I mean, we think of something like, you know, the big Harvey Weinstein type things. Yeah where, you know, people, women are put into a position where they feel obligated to participate in some sort of sexual act. That's not consent. That's done out of fear. That's done out of manipulation. That's done out of dominance. You know, threats against their careers, threats against their livelihood, threats against anything. And so that's why women don't understand that this is what it is. And when you talk about a victim, a survivor. Are there any things that you can say are common in all of those people that you've dealt with? Or is every single person different? Everybody is different. Everybody experiences uh, trauma very, very differently. You and I can be standing on a street corner and see a car accident and I can be going, oh my God, that's really scary. And I flip out and have a meltdown and you're like, "Eh, no big deal. Right. Right. Now, it might not impact you in any way. Maybe it could impact you years later when you see another car accident. Go, oh, my God, I saw this, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Um, But everybody's experience is different. Just like our bodies are different. Everybody, um, we process things in our own time. We process things in our own way. You know, I've had even women, um, my patients tell me, I had one woman tell me that, she was raped and she orgasmed and she thought that it wasn't rape because she enjoyed it and felt a lot of shame around that. Like, you know, that's just a physiological reaction and that is actually not uncommon. Right. And she had never heard that. And this was now 30, 35 years later. And so she's been dealing with this shame and this fear for so long. Putting the blame on a victim is also a very controlling move by the offender it it allows them to to dissolve responsibility of what they've done and i've seen that a lot with offenders you know there's always a not always but there's a an excuse as to why it happens and i've dealt with cases that are fake you know i've sat for many many hours with a victim and things have not wrong true but they have stuck to their story that this has happened this has happened this has happened and eventually it all comes to light that it hasn't happened and obviously there's a reason that that person has gone down that road so what is one of the things that um 
police seem to jump on is that, you know, the story is, isn't always the same, or they seem to remember things later on, um, or they don't seem to remember things in the right order, or they don't seem to remember things at all. And that, again, is not an uncommon experience when it comes to trauma. We forget certain things. It's our brain's way of really protecting us. Um, And the police will sit there and say, well, she's lying because the story, she keeps bringing up more information. Victims rarely make false claims. Does it happen? Yes. But it's minuscule. Well, I'll I'll have a look at that. Yeah. Because I actually thought, and I'm back in my day, I thought it was quite a high statistic. It's And and there's a reason. If somebody does that, there's a reason that that person needs to also understand. Yeah, there's something else going on. yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I understand that if someone is falsely accused, it's it ruins their life because we know it's supposed to be innocent till proven guilty but especially in Hollywood right now you know you have all the the stuff that's been going on in the industry and I have recently been dealing with a case where I know a hundred percent that this particular celebrity is not guilty of what he's been accused of he's been accused of it but he can't afford for that to go into the media. And so in order to protect his brand and his future, he has actually paid the person who has made a false allegation several million dollars Wow! to agree not to say this allegation. Now, that for me is heartbreaking because yeah. we hear all the time, you know, that Women are, are badly treated, and they are. And we hear all the time that it, we don't get a fair go and that this has happened. And the, the Epstein, uh, the oh, Weinstein, yeah. uh, all of that. Um, but then we also, I think, have to take a look at the effects that it's had also on, on men, that now we have somebody who has been accused of a really, really, it was sex trafficking. This person was not a sex trafficker in any way, shape, or form. But to use those terminologies and to get that document put on your desk to say, you pay this money or this person is going to tell the world that you would sex traffic them, they don't have the opportunity to fight it. He hasn't had the, under any circumstances, because the minute that goes public, he loses everything. So I think, you know, we when people are making false allegations, it, there's issues for that person that they need to maybe get help with and understand why. Um, but it's not make it, and I don't want to say that, you know, everyone's innocent or everyone's guilty, but it's, it's a fact of life that it works both ways. I mean, yes, it does. But I, I think that circumstance that you're dealing with is, is more on the rare end than, um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that's money. That's money motivation. Right. And that, that's just a flat out blackmail. And that's, right. I, yeah. And, and that's really, really scary. And, you know, then we jump into things like cancel culture and stuff and how irresponsible um, cancel culture is. Like, just because I don't like you, Nina, um, doesn't mean that I get to go and say bad things about you. I don't have to like you. I love you, but <laughs> I don't have to like you. Right. Be a long and, list of people who don't like me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, irresponsible in that sense. It's, I don't like you. I don't need to be around you, but I don't need to try to ruin your career and ruin your livelihood. That's a really scary issue. 
I'm sorry that your client is having to experience that. Yeah. Um, that's really awful. Yeah. But, you know, I'm un- trying to figure out why, what is it about the psyche um, of, you know, the accuser? I mean, what has happened in that person's life? It's a financial gain. That's it. The person hit hard times and as a result had had a, a, a consensual relationship with this person, but her lawyer incredibly smart, you started to use the words sex trafficked and it's not, it's not. And it, and, and it makes me super cross because I work in sex trafficking world. I rescue kids who have got dislocated jaws at the age of 12 because they've given so many blowjobs. Oh my God. I rescue kids who say that the only thing that they're good at is sex because that's all they know. And they're 13. But I think rape and, and sex traffic, I mean, those are, those are all, you know, interrelated, you know, and, and, and again, it's one of those where, you know, a lot of times people don't realize that they're being sex trafficked. Right. You know, you can be in a consensual relationship with somebody and then there is a manipulation yeah. and gaslighting. And, you know, it, 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 in terms of even putting them into certain sex acts that they don't want to be in but they think that they should because they want to please their partner like threesomes or swinging or you know stuff that you know again are fine to do in a sex positive world but when you're being manipulated by a partner into that yeah that is sex trafficking going back to the offender are there any, because we've said that the victims, it, it can be anyone, literally, there's no, there's no thing that says, hey, I've got the potential to be a rape victim, nothing. Um, but going back to the offender, are there things that are very, you know, you, you see in the offender that's a common character trait, or again, is it something that anyone can be an offender? I know there's, I know there was a time when everyone's like, any man can can be a rapist, which is... Or woman. Or right. woman. Yeah. yeah. Or woman. But is there anything that's kind of you've experienced as working in the role that you worked in that's kind of common? So I, I think majority of rapes in, in that sense have been, in my experience, have been opportunistic. And so, oh, here's an opportunity. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, big violent rapes that, you know, like a serial rapist going and snatching somebody off the street. Um, But I think a lot of them are opportunistic. Um, Also, in my experience, um, a lot of times they're drug-fueled. Right. I had a patient many years ago working in parole who, um, you know, he had been in prison. I think when he was released, he was in maybe his late 40s. 48, 49, not quite 50 years old, um, but had spent a majority of his life incarcerated starting, I think, at like 13, doing, you know, stupid things as a young kid and then went in for prison for for drugs and um, rape and assault and spent a long time having treated him when he came out as part of his parole. Um, and he was very diligent, which in general was not my experience working in the parole office, especially with the sex offenders. But he was one, um, again, he was the one of the anomalies where he, um, his intention was not to rape, but it was very drug-fueled. And he 
didn't really quite remember the rape itself. It was just opportunistic in that moment when he was high on whatever he was high on. So that that was his, you know, when pe- people get drunk, they can do certain things. Or when I'm on Ambien, I can text people in the middle of the night. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and sadly have, and there's a whole show right there. Um, but yeah, that so that was his thing. That was his response to his drug intake was to obviously this the sex was a driver at that point right um so I know I'm asking real tough questions about you know a profile of a of of a rapist is it possible to say there's a profile a lot of times in that background um we have somebody who themselves had been sexually abused as a child when I worked on the child abuse squad when I was in the police, we had a, a very, very sad situation. And it was a family who, um, mum, dad, and they had five kids. And they literally would go to the pub, very, very English. We'd go to the pub at <laughs> lunchtime on a Sunday and they would say to whoever, the kids are at home, go do your thing. And these kids would just be oh massively, God. massively uh-huh. abused from the age of 18 months. Anyway, long story short, we eventually got Obviously, they were put in prison, and the the council wanted to keep the kids together. So they actually purpose built this amazing place for the kids to all be together because they'd been through so much. Probably the most horrifically abused group of family brothers and sisters I've ever met. Anyway, they so they go into the house and they're all living together, and then they start abusing each other. And these kids are from anything from 18 months up to, I think, 14. And one boy and the rest are girls. And they were abusing each other. They were abusing themselves. And the boy, so he was 16 because he was, he was at the age of consent, raped one of the younger siblings. So I had to arrest him as a rapist and deal with him as a rapist, and he actually masturbated throughout the interview. Oh, God. Because he was, I was a female, he was getting off on talking about what he was doing. He wasn't, he was a victim. I mean, he was so, but, but that's, that's the, your own trauma too. How are you, how did you manage yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, we had to tell him that that wasn't okay. Yeah. And, and for me, it was like, he was so different. If, in the eyes of the law, he was a rapist, and that's what I was dealing with him for. But in reality, he was such a badly abused victim, he didn't know any different. He'd been brought up in this world, and yes, he'd committed offences, and yes, at 16, you know, his understanding was that this was not okay. And that was a really, really difficult case because he'd done it. But you looked more at the reasons as to why it had happened and who he was. And it was real tough because it was, you've got to break that cycle. But people also needed to, or the, the kids needed to know that this was not okay. This is what has happened to them all of their lives, daily. That was their normal. That was their normal. Yeah, they didn't know any different. And when people weren't coming in to have sex with them, they were having sex themselves because that was all that they knew. But again, just highlighting the fact that, you know, it's, there's a lot of, trauma sometimes with the offender and that's where you have a your job comes in and I have a very black and white job 
Um, but it's not always black and white. You know, when I come in, it's really about working with somebody to understand that it was a violation. A lot of times women don't want to use the, the word rape. Right. Because it's a big, scary word. And again, we still associate violence, stranger, that sort of thing with rape. And so, you know, it, it's it's about even uh, one of my first things that I do therapeutically is to um, start using the language. So they they start using the language. And it, it doesn't come easy. Right. You know, and they keep saying, you know, I was assaulted. Well, what do you mean by that? They describe what happened. I'm like, that's rape. It, it, it's a really, really hard thing. And they, you know, there's still a lot of shame involved and a lot of blame. Women blame themselves. And two, it, you know, sometimes somebody will say something. Um, a lot of times a family member. I have a recent um, experience with a patient who was raped, was date raped, and she tells her mom and her mom says, you have a habit of making people do things to you. You know, and again, this woman in, I mean, mother-daughter relationships are always, always, always complicated. And we do say things sometimes that we don't intend to say. You know, I don't think, and I don't know this mother, um, and I only know her through my patient's eyes. And and that relationship is complicated. I don't think the mother... um, meant it to be hurtful, but I think it was just reactionary. A lot of times, you know, our gut reaction is to want to make it, whatever it is, whatever this bad thing is, go away. And again, it goes full circle to the fact that people don't respond the way that they're expected to sometimes, and therefore they're not believed. It is a an often a, a silent crime because of all of the reasons we've discussed. And I don't know Having had that experience this week and had been in the police when it was, oh, it's what she's wearing. She's got a short skirt. She's a prostitute. What do, I've been, I lived through that era and I thought we had come a long, long way from there. It's one of my passionate subjects because I don't feel that it's treated in the right way and I don't feel that women are treated in the right way. Or not, not believed. Or believed. And yeah. not always, not always. But, but more so than not. Um, and I yeah. think the conviction rates are low because of that. And, you know, when I, w- I was embarrassed when I was a cop because one of the rape officers I worked with and she was incredible. She was just fantastic. And she was like, if I ever get raped, I'm not reporting it to the police. And that's a police officer who's a rape officer. And that kind of said it all. That's really scary. The only way the system will change is by people continuing to butt against it and say, this is who I am. I'm an individual and I need to be heard. And we also, as a society, need to listen. Yes, that's a very good point to end on. Today, we've only scratched the surface in the many different profiles of sexual assault perpetrators and their victims. It's important that we continue the dialogue about the many forms it can take on to empower individuals that are at risk or have already been victimized. This is a very serious offense, and if you or anyone you know have been a victim of sexual assault and want to reach out directly to me, I'm on social media, Instagram, I am. Nina Hobson, or you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800 656 
hope. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.